You're listening to IEPs and More with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. Welcome to my talk with Stephanie Ferris. Stephanie is a professional I have known over a decade. We have shared quite a few clients over the years. Stephanie is a reading specialist. She has a teaching credential. She tutors students. She spends a lot of time developing and furthering and honing her craft so that she can best support those she works with. Stephanie is wise and kind and really brings the love of reading to all of her students by using ingenuity, experience, and knowledge. Enjoy. Hi, welcome. We are back with session two with Stephanie Ferris, and I think you guys will really enjoy listening to information about Stephanie's work in clinic settings as a one-to-one teacher, what that looks like, what kind of kids have benefited from it, and her overall impressions and experiences. So Stephanie, thank you for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Kathy. It's good to be here. Stephanie, you have worked in what we call a clinic setting with particular kids for how many years? I've been doing this for about 14 years. And it's my understanding originally this program was designed to bring home hospital kids back into school districts. Is that what your understanding was or did you have an understanding? You know, honestly, I'm not sure. I was approached to work with a student and to do home hospital or one-to-one teaching, but I didn't have a background, so I don't know the, the history of the program. And when you were asked to join that team and become the home hospital or one-to-one teacher, were you actually in the home setting? At the beginning, yes. At the beginning, we started in the home, and then we moved the program to my home and because I had a dedicated space 100% used for teaching and it was more of a neutral location. So the student was more successful in a neutral location. So it started off at the home and then we moved it to a neutral location. And when you say the program, you're talking about the student, you as the one-to-one teacher, correct? Correct. And then there was a behaviorist that was involved in the whole process the whole time you were there. Yes. So I work, a lot of times people call it two to one because I'm working, I'm providing the academic support. And then I typically work with a really strong behavior team and they provide the behavior support. And in, in addition, like, you know, sometimes there's observations that need to be done. And so then there's a supervisor that comes also periodically to check in on the program. And then in the situation where we moved my first home hospital student from his house to a neutral location to my house, the school actually sent the school psychologist to do an observation at my house in doing the school setting. She sat in the rocking chair and watched for an hour and a half, and it was great. Did that student have um, elevated behaviors at the time that you began working with him? He absolutely did. Okay, so I'm a little bit familiar with your work. So 
I, I'm going to ask you questions that I actually know the answers to, but I think that parents out there who are listening to this need to understand the types and severities of behaviors that you have been involved with in these clinic type settings. The behaviors range in, in all honesty, many times the behaviors were far worse in their classroom setting, but they range from kicking and hitting to spitting, pulling hair, you know, punching, things like that. But it's not something that I ever take personally. I don't for a second believe that students mean to like inflict harm on somebody. It's just they we're still learning why certain students behave the way they do. There's some severe behaviors. There are some punching, some kicking, some spitting and um, pushing, things like that. But our whole goal is to have those lessen over time. What I try to tell parents is behavior is functional communication. So usually when we see a student who has elevated behaviors, it's their way of communicating something that they don't have words for. So it, and unless there is a strong behavior team and brought in early on in a program, rather than reshaping and refining these behaviors, oftentimes what happens is we reinforce them and they get more severe, more severe, more severe, such that something happens and they are not really, the student's not really able to attend their normal classroom or even a comprehensive campus setting. And rather than sending them to a non-public school or a residential or some far more restrictive environment, this clinic type setting program was developed to help the student learn a different way to communicate, which is part of what the ABA therapy is all about in asking breaks, asking for breaks, building tolerance, trying to figure out like what is the student really trying to communicate and helping them learn different ways. And then your piece is the actual academic demand. Because often in school, if you don't put a demand on a kid, they're not going to have behaviors because their behaviors are generally related to some sort of academic demand. So you're in there providing the academic instruction so that there can be some productivity, right, in this program. Absolutely. And to me, that's key. I mean, I feel like learning is very important. And many times students that have strong behaviors don't have as many opportunities to learn because in a classroom setting, when you have these strong behaviors, sometimes there's not as many support systems in the classroom or they have tried, you know, they make some very good faith efforts. But at the end of the day, a lot of times that by the time I I work with that child, they have spent you know, a lot of alone time <laughs> or a lot of time with the, with the behaviorist and not a lot of time doing academic. That's really challenging too. I, I work really hard to provide really good quality academics because this is an opportunity when we're working in this clinic-based setting to really learn a lot for that student to be able to learn difficult concepts that they weren't able to learn in a traditional classroom. So I take that role very seriously. I'm not going to be giving him or her coloring sheets, or you know, dot to dot things like that. No, I, I create every lesson from scratch for that specific student. 
And, that's and how do you do that? Do you meet the student? Do you look at the IEP? How is it like once you get working with them, you get a much better understanding, but say for the first couple of weeks, when you're starting this process, how do you figure out what it is you're going to do? Combination of things. But the first thing is I always reach out to parents to introduce myself and then also find out what works, what doesn't work. You know, what are things that the student likes activity wise? What do they like to do as a family? What, tor- you know, everything down from like, you know, their favorite dinner, things like that, just so that I have some background knowledge so that at least it, for rapport building also, I can talk about things that that student likes, you know? So, um, you know, if the student likes fishing, I can learn about fishing and be able to talk intelligently about it. If he likes a certain band or has a favorite TV show, um, things like that. And so that's my springboard is this talking with the parents before I ever work with the student. And then based off the discussion with the parents, that helps me provide activities And then um, sometimes I'm able to look at the IEP in advance. Sometimes I'm not. And sometimes, you know, the IEP is just one piece of the puzzle. But it's also really listening to the student, too, when um, the student is on a break and talking about things. I'm paying attention to all that, creating lessons based on preferred topics, (laughs) things that uh, the student likes. Because I can, you know, if that, if the student, for example, one of my students right now, loves this program called Word Girl. I can do math activities with Word Girl characters. I can do language arts activities with Word Girl characters. But because I'm taking that preferred topic, I can pair that with a non-preferred, which is basically anything academics. But there's instant buy-in because all of a sudden he's seen Word Girl, he's seen Huggy, he's seen Mr. Big. And all of a sudden like, oh, I'm still doing numbers, but man, I really like talk. I really like counting Word Girl versus counting just beans or something like that. So. Yeah, so they have real interest in the subject matter, and then the academics sort of sneak in under that. Right. A big piece is talking with the parents and finding out what the student likes, what's been successful, what's not been successful, and then going from there. In the 14 years that you have been participating in this clinic-type setting, approximately how many of these clinics have you been involved in? About 10, 11 of them. It's not something that we, that districts look to do first. <laughs> it is, um, it definitely is, and I don't blame them. I, I want them to exhaust everything they have on their campus. Use all the resources they have, bring in all the specialists, like use everything you have. And then at that point, if that student is still not successful after they've exhausted all their resources, and they think the student can be more successful in a clinic-based setting, then let's talk. But it's something that um, I understand from a district, district standpoint. They're using lots of resources to work with one student, and I understand that. But the beauty of this program is that it's never just one student. I might work with just one student, but there's so many other students that are out there that will never have this opportunity to work one-on-one. But what the school can learn as a result of this teaching and the behavior program will benefit many students in the future. While it is on paper for one student, the reality is it reaches many students. Because what happens is you move from a neutral environment, like your home in that one instance, 
then the program would move onto a school campus in a separate room, not in a classroom, not with other kids, but just to acclimate your student to actually being on campus again, right? Right. So there's different like phases of this program. And so the most intense is when we are completely basically isolated from others. You know, that is when we're working on the behavior teams, working on behaviors. I am concentrating on some basic academics because many times by the time we start clinic setting, the student hasn't had a lot of academics for a while. So that's a whole new concept. And when the criteria criteria is met, and that's we work on that together, the behavior team, the whole team on the criteria. So what's that going to look like? Because we don't want the student to stay by him or herself with the behavior team, with myself forever. We want them to be with peers. We want them to be on a campus. And so we set a criteria. And once that student meets the criteria, then usually the next step is going to a campus in a room that's not going to be with peers, but it is on a campus. And then once that criteria has been met, we look at possibly going to recess with peers or work or identifying a couple of peers to come into our classroom. And we work on like a fun game together. Um, there's all different scenarios that we've done in the past. It just really depends on the student. The, the, the great thing about this model is it's not the exact same model for every single student. You know, I've worked with a, I worked with a student that one of the goals was to have that student feel comfortable around others. So going on a playground was a huge accomplishment because that student had not been did not feel comfortable. In that case, it wasn't so much of bringing you know students in to do academics with us. It was for him to be around others in a spontaneous environment. So it's really crafted to the unique needs of that particular student. But usually after the criteria is met in a neutral setting, we will go to a campus. And hopefully it's the campus that that student will eventually transition to. And then we work on the next step of the program. And what is the next step of the program generally? What does that look like? It, again, it, it depends on the student. But in most cases, um, we're working in a room that doesn't have peers. So sometimes what we like to do is identify with the team, um, with the support of that campus, a couple peers that would be good candidates to maybe come in at recess and play a board game with us, you know, just, just doing something fun. Sometimes that means that we actually go to a classroom, but do not participate with the peers or the teacher. We're just in that classroom after we've done our own classroom for a little bit. Then we move into another classroom, but we're just there with peers and another teacher, but our student is not doing any activities that the other students are doing. I'm still providing the instruction, but we're getting that student used to being around other peers. We're getting that student used to most likely his or her future teacher. And then after that criteria is met, then I will have the teacher come over and she'll do an activity that my student's already familiar with, like a preferred academic that I've already created. He's familiar with it. So then the new teacher will do that to kind of help build rapport. And then sometimes I will teach an, a lesson that the teacher has created. So it just depends. There's lots of different components to the program, but they're very carefully crafted based on the needs of the student. 
And by the time you're able to move even into a campus setting, whether you're bringing in a couple students or going out for a recess, you have already, you and the behavior team have already developed a very strong rapport with your student. So your student has safety in being with you in this anxiety-provoking situation. Oh, absolutely. And there is such a trust involved too. And so by the time that we are on a campus, my student trusts me. My student knows that I would not put him or her in a situation where I did not feel that that they could be successful. The longest period of time in this program is the very beginning where we're not with peers in our classroom yet, where we're in that neutral location, just with one student, with the behavior team and myself. That seems like in the history of doing this, that's the longest period of time because that's where so much critical work has to be done. We have to build rapport. We have to build that trust. We have to work on the foundations of some academic skills, you know, got to work on some of this severe behaviors. But once we move from that neutral location, that student has trust in me, that we have a great rapport so that if I am, you know, if he's in an unfamiliar classroom, there is that trust that he knows, okay, Miss Stephanie knows I can do this and she'll be here to support me. So, but we don't ever start that at the beginning. But this is the hard part of this program is so many times because it is, you know, again, it's, it's seen as for one student, there is this kind of like this rushing thinking sometimes at the very beginning, it takes longer, but then after that beginning is really solid, then we start to see faster progress once that beginning is really, um, set in stone with the when you have a solid foundation in that really difficult transition time because that's really where everything is happening academics are being delivered really maybe for the first time in a long time behaviors being addressed it's a lot for this poor student because this student has already been through a lot. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in a clinic setting exactly. with you in a behavior team, right? Exactly. So, and it, and it is a very slow, methodical process based on the student. But once you get that foundation in place and the student is making progress and then you can move into schools and into the classroom and expand the program, you feel like, those steps happen more quickly than the initial because the initial is the one where we're building, really changing. Absolutely. Yes. Once we move and go into a, a classroom, those are the, you know, towards the end of the program. The, the, the majority of the program is those beginning stages. Building and when you're on a school campus, I think why you might say that other students really benefit from this is the school is also involved. They come in, they observe, they might conduct some assessments. The speech therapist eventually might come in and deliver some speech therapy. The OT may do that, all in your neutral clinic setting on a school campus. So lots of people are exposed 
to what is going on, even though, like you say, it's really designed at that moment for that one student. Right. All that and then some. So you're absolutely right. All those other members of like the school community also interact with our student and learn from him. But in addition, um, one of my, um, we'll go down as one of my most professional, my most wonderful professional accomplishment was this one school district where they, you know, the director of special ed frequently came in to watch, the program manager frequently came in to watch. And something they did, which I really respected, was when we're getting ready to transition, they were fully on board. And so they sent the special ed teacher that was going to be the teacher of my student. Um, We'd already been in her classroom, you know, like a half an hour a day, getting my student used to her. But in addition to that, they had coverage for her, so like a roving substitute, and they had her come into my classroom for a week, watching me deliver lessons for four hours, watching me interact with the student, and they took it a step further. So right there that she's learning, oh, okay, so this is what could trigger it, and this is how Stephanie does it. Not that she has to do it exactly at all, but she's able to see, she doesn't have to go through trial and error. No, and she also has more concentrated time just observing that particular student in an environment that's working. Right. And she saw this activity that I created for this student. He, He struggled with reading comprehension, which is a big struggle for many of our students. So she saw the activity that I created just for him. And I loved it because day two of her observing, she comes in and she's writing everything down. Day three, she's done a draft of this reading comprehension activity. Like, okay, this is how I want to do it in my classroom. Day four, she's already made all the copies. Day five, she's ba- it's all bound. <laughs> so I thought that was fantastic where she has she's seen the value in one of the activities that I created. And again, not just for this one student, but for so many of her students in the classroom. So that's another example of, yeah, it's not just one student. These strategies are so helpful for, for so many students. I believe I'm very familiar with that school district that you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> and I, I do know that once we got the program approved, which was not easy, from day one when I stepped into that school district, I told them exactly what needed to happen, who to call, who to talk to about it, and their eyes glaze over, right? Because they've never heard of anything like this. They complain it's the most restrictive environment. They have no clue that this is a tried and true program that really has been very successful. And that is actually a case I had to litigate. But once we got approval, they embraced you with open arms. Yes. And You actually built, which I think is so wonderful about your personality, you're very inclusatory, and you built very good relationships with everybody at the district. So they embraced you personally and your work. And then as they would learn from it and see, they expanded to use it in other places. And really, I mean, they're like the poster child because they really did support this program. You had your own classroom with that student. You could hang all of his work up. He felt very proud. You felt very proud. I mean, it, it really was a life-changing event. And this is a student who was expelled from school, mind you. 
and had not been in school for quite some time had very limited verbal expression. So there were a lot of challenges for this student and his entire family. And putting that program in place, having the district trust you and embrace the program not only helped many other people in that school, but it actually changed the family dynamic such that they could actually be a family again and not have to be upset about every five minutes something bad is happening at school. I mean, it's a very emotional situation for parents because even they don't know in the beginning, right? A lot of times when I'm involved in these, parents have to trust me because if I explain it to them, they're like, well, what do you mean he's only going to school one hour a day, you know, in the beginning? What do you mean it's only one hour a day? He's supposed to go to school eight hours a day. So we have to educate the parent of the methodical nature of what we're doing and get buy-in from everyone. But once people start to see the progression and how you particularly work with the school and the student and the family, I mean, everyone gets on board and it becomes successful. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know of any situation that I've ever worked in with you that was not successful, that, that we didn't eventually transition the student onto a comprehensive high school or school campus where they were then supported by the school. Even if they needed non-public agency behavior support, which is not unheard of because they are much more experienced and trained, but all of those students were able to go back to an actual least restrictive environment and have a more typical school experience. They have been. They have been. It's been a, a wonderful um, process. You know, um, every student that I've worked with individually is incredibly unique. My very, very first one, 14 years ago, I always say this about him, that he taught me how to be a better teacher because I had taken, you know, I had my teaching credential. I took, I took all these extra classes because I loved, you know, I want to learn how to do a better reading job. So I took reading classes. I want to learn how to do uh, math better. So I took all these math classes. I thought I knew what I was doing. And then I get approached to work with him and I thought, okay, I can do this. I know this. And all that training went out the door. I mean, the third day and he's throwing things and things like that. He taught me how to be such a better teacher. And that's where the buy-in came in. And that's where recognizing that we all have our quirks. We all do. So recognizing, okay, what makes him tick and what doesn't? Okay, he can't, it, for him, looking at more than one problem on a page is too much. So right then and there, I realized, okay, unless I want him to rip up the things I'm making, I need to make it much more, here's this one thing. And in some ways, so many of my other students benefited from that very first student because I learned how to like, I can have complete control over these. So if a student is showing like he's had it, I can still, let's do two more, then we'll be all done. Versus, you know, if he just looks at a page and he, if he starts having behaviors and he doesn't finish it, then he realizes, oh wait, I can act like this. And then I don't have to do the rest of it. 
So right away, I learned from that very first student the value of just really making everything so that um, I can sense, okay, how is he doing? And I can push it. I can do, let's do this many more. Or I can say, okay, based on how he's doing, we're going to do one or two more. It was that very, very first student that really taught me how to be a better teacher. So I'm forever thankful for that. And it also, you help your student by doing that because they're having successful experiences rather than getting a page of work and seeing all of that work and it giving them anxiety and they're ripping it up. So they're not successful problems. If you give them one problem at a time and you work with them, well, then they're success. They did one problem. That's all that was in front of them. And then you gauge because you know the student. Can we do more? Can I push one more? But also leaving them in a successful place so that the next day they don't come with that carried over anxiety. Right. And sometimes, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes I need to think about like when I go and observe the the special ed classroom that the student will be going into, I'm looking at some of the activities and like, okay, so in this classroom, there's going to be some worksheets. Okay. Do I think my student now might be able to handle that? If I do, then I'm going to start, you know, working on some generalization here. So I might take my problems that I've created individually, almost like on word card, on index cards to showing it to them, okay, you've done this, 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 this with me like this. Let me show you how it could look in a class, in another classroom. So they're able to see like, oh, I can do it this way and you can do it this way. So that's an important piece is that as teachers, what's so wonderful about our profession is that we're all very unique and we go about teaching in very many, in different ways. So I want to make sure that when we're getting ready to transition the student I'm working with to a new learning environment, I want to make sure I can kind of see how are things presented so that I can work on generalizing with my students. And that's one of the last steps anyway. So by that time, they're usually open to other ways or sometimes the special teacher will, you know, will work together and I'll show her something that's been really successful. And she's like, oh, let me take this and run with it. Because like I said before, many other kids in my classroom can benefit from this too. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah. And and being able to see what's the expectation, you can do that priming for your student so that the first time they see that kind of stuff isn't when they're back in the more challenging environment, but they've had so much exposure with you where they're safe. Right. It's it's mostly really, I mean, there's a lot of pieces, but it's that safety, that emotional connection that allows the student to relax enough to be able to work on behaviors and academics. It's, It's really an emotional connection that keeps this program viable, in my opinion. I agree. Emotional and trusting is so important. This this idea of trust that I'm not going to give you something that I do not think that, that, I, that I'm going to give you something that I feel you can be successful with, whether it means successful on your own or successful with me providing additional support, but I'm not going to allow that student to fail. I'm not going to give him or her something that's too challenging. Um, even when I'm presenting something brand new, I'm providing a lot of support so that there, there aren't these expectations that they have to come up with the ideas, you know, out of the thin air. So 
I think the trust is really important. And sometimes I'll say, you know what? I blew it. Like that wasn't a fair example. Let me do this again. And I think that's also part of this is that we're, we're going to make mistakes when a student has some strong behaviors and sometimes a student might engage in property destruction. And so sometimes that property destruction is targeted at what's right in front of them and choosing my teaching supplies, which I've made. And one thing that's really important to me is that I do not want that memory, you know, if, if it's a ripped book, let's say. And I always appreciate the BII team, you know, going and trying to tape it all up and everything like that. <laughs> I always appreciate that. And I always say, don't worry, I'll buy a new one and we'll get it tomorrow. I do not want that student to be working in a notebook that has tape all over it because that's a constant reminder. Oh, he made that, a mistake that day. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's a result of him doing something. So you want every day for this student to be fresh right. and to start positive. Because we all make mistakes. Some of them are just a little bit more spectacular than others, <laughs> but <laughs> we all, we all make them. And I don't, I, um, if you, if a student rips a comprehend, uh, you know, like a composition book with notebook paper, again, I've seen this so many times when I go into the classrooms to transition my kids and I see like the, you know, the books that are taped a million times and things like that. I'm like, no, it's okay. I get this, you know, I, it's easy to replace it. It's not very expensive. And I'd rather, and if we have to do it five times, we do it five times, 10, I don't know what the number is, but my whole point is, is that we make mistakes and sometimes behaviors result in property destruction. I don't want that constant reminder to be in front of them. Well, and I also know that parents really love you, right? Because you, you build a very good relationship, have great rapport with parents, and they know you're really trying to help their child. And there have been times that I know of where the student has actually hit you or pulled your hair. I mean, you know, you're the person in front of them. And, and that does happen. But you never really react to it. And you always reassure the parent that don't worry, it's not a big deal. Because you don't want anyone to carry that with them that maybe you're feeling a particular way about that because you really don't i mean you really you really don't harbor any ill feelings about anything that's happened when you're doing these things oh of course not many times i feel worse for the parents because they are devastated no it's again the students i work with they they don't engage in behaviors with the intent of, you know, trying to hurt me. They don't, they, they just don't understand. And that's why we're working with them. They're going to, they're learning. Again, I, I just always feel so bad for the parents because they are just beside themselves. If, you know, my hair gets pulled or I get spit on or something like that. And these things happen. And the good thing is that the majority of time, they tend to happen less and less as the program moves forward. So it's, I always consider it a non-issue. Safety, of course, is our you know number one concern. So please, I'm not taking this lightly. We do not want students to harm others. No, there's no, we do not want that. But we also recognize that in this type of program, that is a common thing with forms of aggression. It just is. We're going to pull all of our resources together and try to work so that we see fewer and fewer of those um, acts of aggression. But it does happen. 
It does. Well, and that's how the kid got in this position, right? If right. the kid didn't have these extreme behaviors, then there would be no need for any of this. Yeah, I would not be doing this. I, they, right. would not, they would not bring me in unless a child had severe behaviors. And for the people who are listening to this, they can't see you, but for context, you're like the tiniest little person, <laughs> right? And you have the kindest voice and you're the tiniest little person. And it always cracks me up when I'm telling people like, okay, this is the team. This is the team. And I don't know really what they expect. I mean, most schools know behaviorists and they know the behavior team or agency that we work with who supports this program. But I, I really would love to be able to see when they actually get their eyes on you, what is going through their head, because you are working with the most challenging of behavioral kids and you are the tiniest thing, and you have never, ever mentioned anything about fear, about not wanting to do something. You treat every single student with the same respect. Your private kids that you tutor, your daughter and her friends, typical kids, and our very, very challenged kids you treat them with the utmost respect, all of them. And I think that that is um, something that makes this program viable is your attitude and your heart towards this particular group of kids that we're trying so hard to help. And that's very sweet of you, Kathy. Thank you. I'm far from tiny, but I'll take it. <laughs> but thank you. That's, very, that's very sweet of you to say. I always say this when I was working um, as a, in a traditional classroom and I had student teachers work with me, is that our job as, a, as teachers is to meet the needs of every student. That's our job. It's to meet the needs of every student. So if that student has behaviors, our job to meet their needs. If that student doesn't know how to read, it's our job to meet the needs of every student. And I really take that, I, it's something that I, I think is very important as a teacher. That's our job as a teacher to meet the needs of every student. That's what I, I try to do. And I also, I can't stress this enough, but I work with, you know, uh, incredible behavior teams. You know, again, safety is the number one priority on a campus and with the staff. It's because this behavior team is so strong that they are constantly trying to think, you know, three steps ahead. And what I love is that they're so collaborative. Sometimes I will reach out right away, like this is a situation that happened today and we'll have a team meeting, you know, we'll schedule a team meeting in an hour. Let's go over it. So it's not something like, you know, we're watching something deteriorate and we're not going to meet for two, you know, two, two weeks, three weeks. So the quality of this program, I think, is a combination of having, you know, an effective teacher, but even I'd say maybe even more important is the really strong behavior team component to make sure that the student is safe, the staff is safe, and let's work on these learned behaviors <laughs> so that we can address them um, so the child can be successful in the classroom. So that's what we work on. The behavior team, I agree with you, is um, essential. And the communication, I mean, I think that being able to have those impromptu team meetings is 
essential be- because of the way the program evolved. Right. We schedule when we're doing this IEP meetings about every four to six weeks because we want to monitor the progress. But when you're involved in the program, you can't wait four to six weeks if something's not working or to change it or to increase the period of time. So having that open communication between the clinicians is essential. Especially because the students that I work with, they tend to develop new little um, (laughs) behaviors. So we're working on, you know, like some of the most aggressive acts of behavior we're starting to see aren't as apparent. So then they've developed some new things that aren't as challenging, but nevertheless, we do not want them engaging in that as we transition to a, a new learning environment. So that's the beauty of working with a really strong behavior team is when we're starting to notice like, wait, the student never used to scream. <laughs> and now in the middle of an activity, he will just scream. So then we start monitoring, okay, how long is he doing it? Is he doing it for attention? Um, how is that affecting the learning? Things like that. And, and then they get the data on it and then they address it right away. And that was something that, you know, it wasn't on any of the documentation before, but that's also very common is sometimes when some of the more severe behaviors are lessening, just to keep us on our toes, some new things develop in the course of working in the clinic instruction and having that strong behavior team that's right there willing to address it and notices it. And then we, you know, we work on, okay, is this going to be a goal? Are we going to, what's the strategy going to be? Things like that, which I really, really respect and appreciate. I mean, it's really a coping mechanism that the student is coming up with, right? Because they don't have what they used in the past to cope because we're we're changing that behavior. So we don't want them to develop coping mechanisms that are still maladaptive for a classroom. So rather than just letting a student rely on that being a way to get out their anxiety, you guys can step in and give them other tool to help them communicate whatever it is they are, whether they need a break, is it escape, is it avoidance, is it attention, but teaching the student an appropriate way to communicate that because that student's going to need to communicate all those things to their teacher, to their, in their classroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. That's the beauty is that being able to ad hoc, get in mm-hmm. and look at it and change up and address it rather than just letting it keep going and solidifying. So then you have to start at square one again. Right. Replacement replacement strategies are huge because they're so beneficial, not just in the classroom, but we find so frequently also in the home setting. We get lots of comments from parents like, you know, a lot of times what we see in a classroom setting, there's similarities at home. Like, for example, I know a parent shared with me that dinner can be challenging, especially if it's like a non-preferred item. And so things that we're using in the classroom, those those same strategies, then the parents are able to use in the home setting. And it makes for a very much more of a peaceful home environment too. So again, it's not isolated to just one student in this one environment. It really impacts many others in a very positive way. And it's a consistency of program. I mean, often our kids that are in a clinic setting also have home ABA providers, right? And often if we can marry those two agencies, so it's one, it's a seamless transition between home and school. So everything is being reinforced in every location. Right. No, absolutely. That's a huge benefit when there's 
the home provider also, and we collaborate. And it's even better if it's the same home provider, but even if it's not the same home provider, there's still a collaboration um, cons- uh, idea that's really helpful. Well, I really appreciate you talking about all this. And I'm wondering, is there anything else that you would like to say about any of your work in these settings? I think just one final comment is how rewarding it is. It's incredibly rewarding working with a student that has been incredibly unsuccessful in many different learning environments, because by the time they're in this clinic-based setting, many times they've been in multiple different learning environments on a traditional campus, non-public, you name it. And so to get to have to work with that student that has been very unsuccessful in this new environment is incredibly rewarding. So I just, I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to work with students that are in, in the situation and, and hopefully make a difference. You know, I agree with you a hundred percent because those, those situations are extremely rewarding for me when you can help change the trajectory of one person's life that there is nothing there is no gift there is no item there is no thing in the world that really makes me feel better than to to know that we were a part of helping somebody have a better future well thank you and i look forward to i know we have a new clinic starting soon so we can come back and talk about what happens there but thank you for always being willing to join me stephanie really appreciate it my pleasure thanks so much kathy take care bye-bye you've been listening to ieps and more with kathy greco if you have questions guest suggestions or comments you can reach out to kathy at kathy at grecoadvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021 IEPs and more. Thanks for listening.